The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Mental health stigma is certainly nothing new, and it's not just a federal government or intelligence community issue by far, but I will say the federal government and intelligence community have taken big steps over the past several years to try to reduce stigma, and especially mental health stigma as it pertains to the security clearance process. One of the leaders in that conversation is Lidos. So today we're joined by Cynthia Strand, former senior officer with the CIA and current VP of Customer Engagement with the CIA for Lidos. She's joining us today to chat about an ongoing campaign for Lidos, Mission of the Mind, and specifically a white paper the company released about mental health considerations in the security clearance process. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for sharing your expertise and being part of such an important conversation. Thank you. We are really pleased to have this opportunity to spread the word on some good work that's been done recently, but also to continue to keep this in discussion and keep this visible, which is one of the biggest challenges mental health has had in the IC. Yeah, no, I love that you're focusing on that. And so talk kind of about the security clearance process, because this white paper that you just released is very specific to talking about stigma around the security clearance process. So why highlight that as a part of this mental health awareness campaign? So Lidos has been in this domain of mental health since 2017. Initially, we focused on the opiate crisis, appropriately so, but recently have expanded to focus on mental health challenges. One of the biggest reasons is that the government needs a robust national security workforce to address the very new and emerging challenges to national security. And that requires being able to draw on the best talent, regardless of of some personal matters and personal mental health issues they may be dealing with. We don't want people opting out because they have the misperception they would be excluded. They've done such a great job of kind of highlighting the numbers around the denials and revocations for mental health issues are staggeringly low. I like to say that data lies, that you can make data lie. I don't know if you'd agree with me, Cynthia, but sometimes when you look at that number, that's the denial rate. But what we don't capture, right, are those folks who, because of just stigma or lack of awareness, are just opting out of the process. So I love that you you highlight that. So you had a long career in the CIA. They have been surprisingly mm-hmm. successful in being a leader around a lot of issues when it comes to diversity, inclusive hiring. But you don't necessarily see that, at least from my vantage, around the topic of mental health. But again, it's also the CIA. The intelligence community is not always great at giving exposure to every topic that it addresses. Is that more misconception than reality? Or why is it kind of difficult, even as someone who kind of works in this space, to think of or find folks in the intelligence community who have really gone public or discussed mental health? I think there are a couple of really important reasons. Stigma and anticipated consequences. Both are powerful disincentives to speak publicly about mental illness. The American Psychological Association released a study in 2016 that concluded 
There is no country, society, or culture where people with mental illnesses have the same societal value as people without mental illnesses, more so in the national security community where mental and physical toughness are highly valued. So these professionals have to deal with the symptoms of their illness and the prejudices of their colleagues and managers. The anticipated consequences of disclosing mental illness can range from minor to substantial, and none of them are positive. It's from how my colleagues will view and treat me, to being denied career advancing assignments, to potentially losing my clearances and my job. It is a really tough rut to break out of. I've dealt with depression for much of my life and kept it hidden most of my work career for the reasons I just cited. And it was only in the few years before retirement that I began to share my mental health journey with officers who came to see me with their own challenges. No regrets. I just wish that I had started sharing it sooner because it was clear that people were surprised. They had not expected to hear that from someone who was perceived to have a very successful career rising through the ranks. No, and it's great that you point that out, too, because I think when you have that, when everyone around you seems like they're doing okay, and you feel like you're the only one who's not doing okay, then you're less likely Mm -hmm. to come forward. So all it takes is kind of those first few strategic folks to kind of come forward. So do you think that's kind of happening internally with the piece that they're pivoting to now, again, even with campaigns like Lidos is trying to display that externally, what's already happening maybe inside the agency or inside some of these intelligence community elements? So I think personal disclosure, it may be happening, but not at, not at the numbers and breadth that we really need it to for people to feel comfortable recognizing and addressing their own mental health challenges. And that's the real reason for sharing is, is encouraging people to say, I just need to get some form of treatment so I can manage my situation and then carry on with my career. I think it will take at least several years and a significant number of people disclosing their own journeys to get broader progress in getting the workforce to engage and take care of their own health situation. And I thought the paper touched on a point that was really worth exploring further, which is the lack of awareness and understanding about the security clearance process. Podcast Mm -hmm. is titled Security Clearance and Security. That's all Mm -hmm. about what I'm about for clearancejobs.com is trying to get more candidates involved in this process through education. So why is the education piece important for applicants and clearance holders both? It's important so that everybody understands what the real concerns are and can behave consistently and appropriately around their concerns. And it's not just the applicants and the current security holders, it's everybody who's involved in the clearance process. So not too long ago, the DNI attempted to provide some clarity around what mental health conditions will be considered in the clearance process. But we also need every element in the process from the background investigators who are the very first individuals to touch applicants to polygraphers who have a really tough job in a stressful setting to the adjudicators who ultimately hold the power of the final clearance decision and bear responsibility for the risks incurred with every clearance granted. Each of these professionals must have the knowledge about mental health conditions and the current policies for clearances, as well as personal empathy. So it requires not just education around the processes and around mental health itself, but it requires screening as individuals are selected for these roles because you can't train empathy. No, I think that's great you pointed that. I think I think there's a movement. I think there's a, a bigger kind of muscle movement happening across the security clearance and personnel vetting process with Trusted Workforce 2.0. They're looking at all the different pieces of it, right? Like you mentioned, the polygraphers, mm-hmm. the background investigators. I heard you know someone describing like, what what would happen if your background investigator asked you how you were doing and offered you a snack. 
as a part of your background. I don't, I don't know if we're going to get there, but they do have a part of kind of a welcoming. They are a part of that welcome into the intelligence community. And if they act like they are on the attack and looking for something negative, mm-hmm. and if you struggle with an issue, you're going to, that's going to affect your ability to see the process through. So I love that you highlight all those different components and that Lidos did that in their paper. So the Department of Defense has led on this issue, I think, because of PTSD, suicide numbers, and service members. They were a big part of the push to change the SF-86 and the mental health questions. I think the intel community always, because they are the intel community, is kind of in the shadows, so to speak. I don't mean that in a negative way, but they sometimes don't lead as aggressively on some of these topical issues. But again, that just could be from my vantage point. But I do know that, you know, for folks serving in the IC, the reality is there are trauma issues. There are definitely things that are specific to the to the intel community. So kind of how would you kind of explain that? You know, obviously the security clearance community is DOD, but a big part of it is also the IC. Do you think there's more steps the IC can take around kind of coming more forward on this issue? I think first, it's really quite challenging to draw a fair comparison between DOD and the IC on this matter due to visibility and scale. People understand the work of DOD officers and active duty military personnel, while the IC generally operates behind the curtain, not just from the public, but sometimes amongst themselves because of compartmentation. So you also have the fact that the DOD workforce dwarfs the IC. So their diaspora is large and very far flung and supporting them with mental health care services requires a large and very visible infrastructure. Some of those services, Lidos is very proud to provide, but the IC is smaller, it's more closed, and it tends to just deal with these matters with less visibility. But I can give you several examples of how the IC is attentive to and looking after the mental health needs of their officers. In 2013, a CIA counterterrorism officer took her life in the field just before she was to come home from a tour, and she was honored with a star on CIA's memorial wall. And that decision was was pretty controversial. Depending on how you read the criteria, some would argue that she met the criteria, others would argue that she did not. So like in most things, it was a judgment call. Director Brennan was very clear in his support of the decision to give her a star, noting her tremendous commitment to the agency's mission, and her death, he felt, was a direct result of her work and her dedication in a very difficult environment overseas. And the agency needed to recognize that. After that, Director Brennan became more attentive to CIA needs. We brought Taya Kyle in, the widow of Navy SEAL Chris Kyle. Most people would know him as the American sniper. She came in and spoke with CIA officers about recognizing the signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress, seeking help, and the importance of maintaining open communications with family and friends. And then in November of last year, CIA Director Burns named the very first CIA wellness officer. And one of the key responsibilities of that role is providing mental health resources to officers and their family members. So going back to your earlier point about bringing this out into the open, the willingness to talk, I think merely identifying the wellness officer as a key seventh floor role and giving mental health as part of the overall charge can really help move the mental health conversation more into the light at CIA and in the broader context of physical well-being. It's part of your whole person. And then finally, NSA has a well-being check. They have a continuous vetting practice that emphasizes proactive support and early intervention with government resources to meet the mental health needs of their staff before they become security issues. 
So there are things that are happening. These are a few that we can talk about. It does make sense. And we have those conversations, you know, just even, you know, with folks who are in this community. Hey, why don't we have more people talking about not just mental health, a lot of topics. And it's like, well, if you've been within the intelligence community, you are trained to keep secrets. And it's hard to know where to draw the line on what to what to reveal and what not to. So I do think maybe a, a part of this conversation is just saying, like, I have heard from a lot of people is that within this community, the support and the camaraderie and the team that you experience is strong. And that also yeah. extends and includes to if you're honest about your mental health issues, you will find welcome opening arms within that community. And I love that you mentioned the whole person concept. That is my biggest you know, framework for placing this into because the security clearance process is all, is all about the whole person. And that includes mm-hmm. any mental health struggles or issues you have that is considered within the totality of who you are as a person. And you mm-hmm. are a whole person and the IC needs whole people. I love that you highlighted that too. So I love a good public-private partnership. How can industry help the government in this area? Because I think that's one of the things that I love to see. So I think it's important to note that industry and government share this problem. It's not a government problem. It's, it's a problem for both because we're both seeking talented people who can apply their unique skills to national security missions. We own different elements of the solution. So the government owns the policy, the decision, the implementation of clearance process, vetting, and then granting, I'd love to see them draw more on the experience and expertise of companies like Lidos to better understand the challenge and then work with those companies to jointly explore solutions. But at the end of the day, mental health is a deeply personal matter, and the willingness of current clearance holders and applicants to seek the care they need is dependent upon their trust in the agency, trust that they're not putting their professional reputation and livelihood at risk. And one of the best ways we can begin to build that trust is by having an open discussion about it. Fantastic. Well, I feel like this tees perfectly to you. I realized when I was getting ready for this interview that you were also a part of the new IC event that the Intelligence and National Security Alliance is doing. So I'm helping with one of those panels. So I'll do a plug for INSA anytime because I love them so much. And they are another kind of example of bridging this gap. So if you wanted to learn more about this topic, if you want to chat with Cynthia and I, you can register and sign up for the new IC (laughs) event. It's Wednesday, September 27th from eight to five. And that will be, I think, a clear example where they are addressing this topic. They're addressing wellness within the IC community, and they are a great organization to get plugged in with. If you are wondering where can you go to learn more about these topics and be engaged, definitely go to INSA, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts or anything I didn't ask about, Cynthia, that you wanted to chat about today? No, I think you you covered a lot of ground really well. I would encourage people to look at the Lighthouse Report. It's available online, and I will plug INSA as well because I'm a huge <laughs> fan of the organization. Come for for the discussion, but also come to meet some pretty amazing national security professionals. They're pulling together a great group. Oh, I have so many fangirl moments every time I walk into an Insta room. And then it's just like that you have, I think so much of what happens is like, it's hard to get those communities together, which is, you know, for good reason. Nobody does it better than Insta. And that is just a really energizing, fantastic event. And I love that they bring people from all different levels, career levels, because that's so important on this issue. I think we talk, you know, there's folks like you who have come out of this community who have had a very long, successful career. Sometimes we see that and we forget, oh, there's people at every age demographic coming together and every career level. And INSA really does a great job putting all of those people in the same room because we need that. We need to energize our young people to consider these careers. We need to motivate the middle management and we need to, you know, pull from the from the vast, you know, knowledge and treasure trove of information we can get from folks who have 
spent decades in this community. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate your involvement. And I appreciate your being upfront and leading on this really important topic. So thank you so much, Cynthia. Thank you, Lindy. We appreciate the opportunity to share our work. Join the Homeland Security Experts Group for the third annual Homeland Security Enterprise Forum, October 9th and 10th at the Omni Shoreham Hotel. HF23 will focus on advancing the enterprise through the adoption of current and emerging technology to make America more secure and prosperous. HCEF is attended by senior government officials, private sector executives, and thought leaders from across the nation. More information and registration are available at www.hsenterpriseforum.org. Welcome to The Conversation. I am Sean Bigley, and I'm here with Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about FSOs who give bad advice. And Lindy, I am sure you have come across this more than once at clearance jobs. Uh, Of course, the vast majority, and I think this is important to say, the vast majority of FSOs are good people who are doing the best they can with what they have. But at the same time, I think many people would be surprised to find out how little training most FSOs actually have. And yet these are the folks who are expected to communicate security policies to the workforce and enforce the rules. And so oftentimes when cleared employees turn to their FSO for advice, they may not get the best advice. Sometimes that can play out in unfortunate ways. So I'm curious, any particular horror stories that come to mind? Well, I mean, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because I love FSOs now. We work with them a ton at clearance jobs. They're doing great things, but I do have also many horror stories about FSOs. And my experience is a lot of times many security clearance holders have no idea who their FSO is. So that's kind of a change that I would love to see. We see all of these policy updates and things happening, and there's just not a clear understanding that there are these functions around cleared contracts called security officers that I think because of their contractual requirement for the contract community, it can become a check the box on, especially depending on the size of the business. So you get folks dual hatted into the role, as you said, undertrained, maybe underutilized, under-resourced. And that's not the case across every company, of course. Like Again, we work with great FSOs every day. But there are a lot of folks out there who just don't know. And I worked, my, my story is always, I worked at the Pentagon, had no idea that I had a security officer or that person existed or any of the policies that I write about for clearance jobs right now. I had no clue that they existed during the time when I was actually holding a security clearance at the Pentagon. Oh, the irony. So it's just like, oh, wait, there were rules. Oh, like you're not supposed to email people FOUO documents. Weird. Never heard of that. There's just all of these things that I just did not know and did not know the security function. So absolutely, we hear all the time from folks at clearance jobs who either cannot get information from their FSO, do not know who their FSO is, and the worst case has gotten bad advice. Now, I do find like in general, security officers want to protect classified information. So they are doing their best due diligence around that information But there is, a, as you know, a lot of room for interpretation around all these policies. One of my favorite FSO stories is I was at an FSO conference and this guy tried to tell me, we were talking about social media and social media monitoring. He said, well, yeah, well, I tell all of my people that they have to report to me every time they get on an online dating site. And I was like, oh, well, no wonder you can't (laughs) hire anybody. There are FSO stories where folks are saying this. And I don't know, you work with the IC more than I do. Maybe the CIA requires 
requires that kind of reporting. But last I checked, you didn't have to go tell your security officer that you had a hot date on Coffee Meets Bagel. But maybe <laughs> I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, no, you are you are definitely not wrong. And, and it is funny. I mean, some of these stories, I've heard similar stories over the years where, you know, FSOs, I think, again, I'm sure well-meaning, but, you know, maybe taking it a little too far or they you know, simply don't understand the policies that they're being asked to enforce, not always by their own fault. I mean, in fairness, a lot of these policies, as you said, are not only, you know, open to interpretation, but the government does a very poor job in many cases of communicating what the policies actually are. And, you know, we've talked recently uh, a lot about CUI on clearance jobs and on this show. And, you know, yet, the government, in many cases, is not adequately training the workforce on what their expectations are with CY. So I think this is another example where people are kind of thrown into these roles as FSOs. Sometimes, to your point, they're dual-hatted. In a lot of these smaller companies, it's not a full-time role. And they're expected to just kind of know everything. And the employee just shows up in their office and says, hey, what do I do about X, Y, Z? And they're kind of like, uh, well, let me, let me figure that out for you. I don't know. So... I think, you know, this this phenomenon or this this angst about, you know, my FSO gave me bad advice, what do I do? It is a very common problem. I have seen it personally many, many times over the years. And I think what's important for people to understand here is under the adjudicative guidelines for security clearances, if you get advice that subsequently turns out to be ill-informed and you rely on it, and then the government comes after you and says, we're going to try to take away your security clearance. As long as you relied on that advice in good faith, and as long as a reasonable, ordinary person in your position wouldn't have gone, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, you're probably going to be fine. There is a provision, a mitigating provision in the adjudicative guidelines where these sorts of things happen that says the person you know relied in good faith on advice and important caveat from someone qualified to give it. So not your buddy or your bro who you're sitting, you know, at the bar with and asking, you know, for their uninformed opinion. That doesn't count. In many cases, even lawyers, I've seen cases time and time again over the years where someone has gotten in trouble for not listing something on their SF-86 and they say, well, oh, my criminal defense attorney told me that this was expunged and I didn't have to list it on anything. And the government's like, well, that's great, but it specifically says on the form that you have to list it even if it's expunged. So you didn't think to ask, like you didn't want to clarify. like So it has to be somebody who is specifically trained and in a role you know, to give that advice and to, to know what they're talking about. So if you have questions about security clearances, the FSO is supposed to be that resource for you. Obviously, there are many situations, though, where somebody may not feel comfortable having the conversation because they're thinking, and perhaps rightfully so, gosh, I don't know if this is reportable, but I don't want to tell my company that I violated their policies, for example, if this isn't reportable. So who do I talk to? And in that case, they say, well, you know, that's what security clearance attorneys are for. That's probably going to inoculate you a little better to say, hey, I spoke with somebody who specializes in this field and holds themselves out as an expert in this field. Now, granted, there are some, unfortunately, some some shyster attorneys as well out there. But on the whole, you know, you got to get to the right source. And so if you are somebody who is finding yourself in a situation and you're going to your FSO and you're having that conversation, I think it's really, really important that you document, document, document. I cannot emphasize that enough. You have to have a paper trail because I've seen plenty of cases where somebody said, my 
FSO told me I could do this. And the FSO goes, I don't remember that conversation. You know, in many cases, they may very well remember that conversation, but they don't want to cop to having been ignorant or having given bad advice either. You have to document yourself and inoculate yourself against those hypotheticals. I think it's better to to do that and to seek out the advice than to just sort of wing it. I think, again, on the, on the whole, the FSO is there as a resource, but there are, of course, exceptions to that rule where seeking out some legal advice are, is probably the prudent first step. Well, I mean, just know, like, they are giving you their best advice. Like, unless they are quoting a government policy at you, know that they are giving you their best interpretation of that. So what I sometimes tell folks, I mean, I love it when I can hear folks like, you know, reps from DCSA will go out and speak at events. That's like going to like some of the security conferences like NCMS and NSI and attending events and hearing directly from folks who are working in this space. Because then you're like, oh, actually, Perry Russell Hunter said this interpretation of the policy through Doha and then have that in your back pocket as opposed to just going with what your security officer said alone. Because again, they are... Unless they're quoting you a policy, they are giving you their best interpretation of what they think it is. For applicants, I feel like it becomes less an issue. I, it's coming up more and more for folks who are currently in the cleared space with things like the ambiguity around drug policies and laws, right? And what if my spouse is prescribed you know, a medicinal marijuana and how, how does that look? And you have some security officers who are going to go a lot more hard line than the government. And now it's like what we've said before, it kind of comes down to how important your security clearance is to you, how, how much you need to hold it. But know that the government a lot of times yeah. is actually, in my experience, opened up more gray area around that, at least within DOD. Not see as it's still its own beast. The DOD has opened up more gray area than you're going to get from the average security officer and know that they're not just out to protect your security clearance. They're also advocating for their company's bottom line. They are heavily on the side of trying to protect the CYA to go back to like our earlier conversations we've had is very real and know that it is in your best interest sometimes to get a third opinion, third party opinion, go to the policy yourself. Because you are ultimately responsible for the decision. That's why I say you signed the SF-86 that you were saying that this is a true and accurate form. And again, unless you have a good paper trail for somebody who gave you you know, a good reason not to list something, it's on you as the applicant or the clearance holder that you're doing the right thing. I'll add, I really like the point that you raised about you know asking for the source of the information. I think that's actually really good advice because it's one thing to go to your FSO and say, you know, here's my question. What do I do about this? Get the answer and move forward. It's another thing to say, here's my question. What do I do about this? And then, oh, by the way, thanks for the advice. Can you point me to the source of that advice? Because then you're not only getting the information, but you're going directly to the source. And I think that also is valuable in in many respects, including that when you subsequently read the policy, if you then walk away with a different interpretation of it than your FSOs, then it may be worth escalating and either going back to them and saying, hey, I, I appreciate this. I read it. I walked away with a different interpretation than you had. So how do we reconcile these? Maybe we need to get our you know, DCSA rep involved, or maybe we need to go to whatever agency is sponsoring our clearances and, and, and ask, like, we've got some differences of opinion here. Where, do, where does this fall? And so a lot of this stuff, yeah, it's, it's subjective, but at the end of the day, you want to be on the right side of, of the interpretation, at least in the eyes of the agency. So hopefully that's a good starting place for folks. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.